at Van City, you will often hear a particular phrase, uh, and that is, we are practicing the way of Jesus together. Now, of course, without reinforced context and clarity again and again and again, a phrase becomes just that and little more, something we say to say, few of us remembering why exactly. So, this evening, imagine, if you will, this. Imagine a young college student having recently relocated to Manhattan Imagine them strolling through the doors of Juilliard, which is one of the world's leading schools for dance, drama, and music in particular. And this first-year jazz student files into a classroom with other young musicians as the conductor strolls through the crowd and stands before the group for the first time. And the conductor tells them, you are here to practice the way of musicianship. You must fill your minds with music and study the art of music and listen to music and live and work with other musicians. And of course, you will practice every single day because, he says, to be a musician is a way of life, a lifestyle. It is a way. And these young students are disciples of their conductor apprentices to a teacher, if you will. They are apprenticing and training in the ways of mastery. Now, with that imaginative little vignette still in your mind, consider for a moment the way many of us in the Western world have been trained to think of and to approach church. Um, we tend to think of church as an event on a Sunday evening. We listen to someone talk at us like you're doing right now. We sing songs. We, maybe we join a small group and come when we feel like it. But church, by and large, is nothing like Juilliard. And sadly, for many who claim Christianity, church is far from an arena in which to learn and train in a way of life with other students, with other apprentices. And yet, when Jesus invited men and women to follow him, he invited them to become students, apprentices. In fact, we think one of the best ways of translating that word methetes or, or disciple is with the word apprentice. They would fill their minds with the way of Jesus, study the way of Jesus, listen to the way of Jesus, live and work with other disciples and apprentices, and of course, they would practice every single day. We are practicing the way of Jesus together. So, every couple of months, we turn our attention to a new spiritual discipline, which is something that was exemplified in the life of Jesus, described in the teachings of Jesus, and practiced by the early church. And we alternate those disciplines with principles of emotional health, because we want to grow in spiritual maturity, just as we grow in spiritual discipline and mastery of a way of life. Last week, we began a new practice as a family. And this particular practice is actually a fascinating one because unlike some other practices like, say, silence and solitude or contemplative prayer, just about anyone with even a passing awareness of the Bible or Jesus has probably at least heard of this practice. It's well represented all throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is practiced, practiced and taught by Jesus and was a staple of the early church for hundreds of years, and yet... Many, if not most, modern Western disciples of Jesus don't understand this practice, misunderstand this practice, and don't engage it whatsoever. It is the ancient spiritual discipline of fasting. So last week we covered what fasting is and is not. 
which is crucial in this discussion. So if you weren't here, please go back and catch up on the podcast. We also have a bonus podcast with our friend Bethany Allen from Bridgetown Church and my wife, Abby. Uh, They open a discussion about fasting and body image and eating disorders. It's tremendously helpful in paving a way forward if you've struggled with any of those. But to recap the broad sort of overarching reasons for fasting, we propose that there's probably three main categories. The first is to starve the flesh, so to speak, or the brokenness of you as a person, and to instead feed the spirit. The second reason or way to fast is to pray. And then third, you fast to stand in solidarity with the poor. Now, last week, we unpacked reason number one, to starve the flesh and to feed the spirit. So this week is about what it means to fast as a form of prayer. So if you don't mind, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, you can use the digital or analog version of the Bible. Both are available to you. Uh, And we're going to talk for a minute about what it means to pray. Now, prayer is complicated, obviously. Last summer, we spent more than a month working through a teaching series and an entire set of practices all about prayer. But for even those of us who enjoy prayer, which I realize may be the minority, or who want to pray, prayer is really complicated. One reason, I would argue, is that despite the fact that we describe prayer with spiritual language, and rightly so, it is a spiritual thing, despite the fact that we think of prayer as something compelled by the heart, so to speak, and it is, prayer, at least in function, is a mostly cerebral activity. Think about it. You know, in prayer, you think things. Ordinarily, you just sit quietly and you think things. You entertain a conversation in which you talk to God, often entirely in your mind, and you listen to God, again, in your mind. And herein lies the rub. In the story of the Bible, you are not merely a mind. You are a holistically integrated being, meaning a mind and body. And this stands in stark contrast to the sort of post-Enlightenment worldview of human beings as in essence, inner, uh, engines of thought. You know, think of the philosophical proposition of Rene Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. Existence is verified by cognition. And if that sounds too, you know, sort of brainy brain food for you, here's Ross Geller to summarize what I'm getting at. So I just finished this fascinating book. <clears throat> by the year 2030, there'll be computers that can carry out the same amount of functions as an actual human brain. So, theoretically, you could download your thoughts and memories into this computer and and, and live forever as a machine. (laughs) And I just realized I can sleep with my eyes open. (laughs) Poor Ross, he's like, what a, he's smart. What, how lame is that? Uh, But, (laughs) yeah, that was an excuse to play that clip. Sue me. (laughs) What Ross is getting at is that the entirety of your existence is in the mind alone. I mean, think about it. You can live forever as a machine. You could transfer it to a computer database and continue to live just as a mind. But the biblical authors do not share the paradigm of Ross Geller. Uh, not by a long shot. In fact, in the story of the Bible, the, the purpose of the body is so much more than, as Thomas Edison put it, to carry the brain around. Your body is you, just in the same way that your mind is you. You are not a mind in a body. You are a mind and a body. Now, of course, you and I live and operate within a sort of shared cultural worldview in which prayer is done entirely with the mind, making it quite difficult for us to conceive of a type of prayer that is done with the body. 
But that's precisely one dimension of what fasting is, which brings us to Acts chapter 13. If you're there, let's read Acts chapter 13, beginning in the very first verse. It says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now notice the way the text pairs fasting and praying. And this, of course, isn't at all unique to this passage, and we'll get to a, a lot more in just a bit. But this is a plain and helpful paradigm building block for fasting as a way of praying. In his book, The Ancient Practices, Fasting, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls fasting body talk. And I love that definition. This is quite similar to what happens when many of us express ourselves in worship. Even the simple act of lifting your hands uh, is just this idea that you are expressing with your body that your heart and your mind are being moved in worship, and so your body does likewise. It's not at all dissimilar to the idea of dancing in the general and broad sense. Music is fed into the brain, affects the emotions, and your body responds to it. Fasting, in this sense, is a way of expressing spiritual hunger with physical representation. Fasting is a way of expressing spiritual hunger with physical representation. Catholic priest Thomas Ryan says it well. He said, hunger is a feeling of emptiness, of desire for sustenance. It can also refer to a non-food-related desire or craving, as in hungry for success or hungry for power. One of Webster's definitions is lacking needful or desirable elements, not fertile, poor. Hunger is the state of not having what we need or want and yearning for it. But listen, because I realize this is a slippery concept. In my experience, it's, it is a concept often misrepresented and misunderstood because fasting is not a hunger strike. Uh, expressing spiritual hunger before God is not an effort to force God into answering a prayer he would not answer otherwise. As if, you know, God's attention could only be garnered when we throw a fit and we throw a tantrum and say, I'm not going to eat anything until you listen. But listen, because this is something that we often overlook about uh, the, the concept of fasting, and that's this really simple idea that God is relational. Look at this passage from Jeremiah in which God himself says to Israel, you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So allow me a, a crude analogy. Imagine that one morning as I'm walking out the door to work and I'm chatting with my wife, Abby, I mentioned to her in passing, hey, you know what? I wish we were spending more quality time together. And then, you know, uh, I go on my way. She might agree. She might appreciate that I've noticed that. She might even take notes so that we can rectify the problem later. But imagine if instead I were to sit down with my wife when there are no distractions, look her in the eye, pour my heart out to her, I miss you, we don't spend enough time together, I feel that every day, I don't want that to be the case, and I want this to change. And then I propose to her how I plan to begin resolving this issue, beginning with quality time right then and there. If we were to guess, I imagine that we would all agree that the situation that would more affect Abby would be the latter, when I actually make space to sit down and to seek her with all of my heart, so to speak. 
And if we assume the best of Abby, that doesn't mean that she doesn't care about the passing conversation when I make my way out the door to work. It doesn't mean that she can't or won't be affected by that or that she would not respond to that passing conversation, but she's a human being and she is relational. Similarly, it isn't that God ignores the passing prayer, it isn't that he won't answer that, it isn't that he cares less, but God is relational. And by his own declaration, we find him when we seek him with our whole heart. God responds. In his 1968 work, God's Chosen Fast, author Arthur Wallace writes this, how often we have made earnest prayers to God for some specific need with the assurance that this was in the will of God and yet there has been no answer from heaven. Why? It could well be and often is that God is saying to us, when you seek me with your, all your heart, I will be found by you. When a man or woman is willing to set aside the legitimate appetites of the body to concentrate on the work of praying, he or she is demonstrating that they mean business, that they are seeking God with all their hearts and will not let go unless God answers. In the 1800s, Andrew Murray said this, Fasting helps us to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain the kingdom of God. No, that does not mean that it is a hunger strike. It isn't a manipulative tool to put pressure on God. Fasting is a way of expressing with our bodies the great hunger of our hearts to see God move. So fasting is a form of prayer, but of course, Prayer is a multifaceted and nuanced thing, so before we end tonight, let's unpack a few specific ways in which one might fast to pray. The first is that we fast to repent. And remember that word repent, which I, is a word I realize is religiously loaded for many of us. It's a word that simply means to turn around, to give up one way and head in a new direction instead. And fasting as a means of doing just that is a concept that surfaces again and again and again in the scriptures. Look at this story from 1 Samuel. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Here's another excerpt from the story of King Ahab, which if you know anything about the Old Testament is Israel's worst king. In the story, the prophet Elijah comes to Ahab with this horrifying statement of Ahab's impending death. And then we read this. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, which is a sign in the ancient world of uh, regret and agony. He put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, when, have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring the disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. God says something is definitely going to happen, and then a dude, in this case a very bad dude, prays and fasts, and God relents. And this notion was so ingrained in Israel's consciousness that they practiced it as an entire people on the occasion of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Look at this from Leviticus 23. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves or fast and present a food offering to the Lord instead. And what I love about this passage is that the phrase deny yourselves, which sounds so hardcore to us already, uh, is actually translated elsewhere or in other versions of the Bible as afflict yourselves. 
Israel set aside 24 hours to fast or afflict themselves as an act of repentance for an entire year's worth of sin. And listen, don't, don't tune out. I know that to many of us, that notion sounds archaic or maybe it even sounds like a, a weird or abusive, but listen for a moment. Our modern, uh, in this case, Protestant tradition, I, I would argue, often has little space for the confession of sin. Even that term, confession, seems to alienate uh, us or, or we just think, you know, Catholicism when we hear confession. The way we deal with our mistakes is ordinarily to sort of apologize to God in our minds and then to go about business as usual. And ironically, this often contributes to an ongoing issue of guilt and shame rather than preventing it. Uh, let's return to the marriage metaphor once more. Imagine that I have wronged Abby in some profound and personal way. You'll have to really use your imagination. I'm not sure that that's ever happened, but imagine that that could have been the case. Um, imagine I've hurt her egregiously, and imagine then that knowing she loves me and that she will forgive me because her character has proved that that's the case for many years now. Imagine that I apologize in a few sentences. I mean it, but I'm like, hey, I'm really sorry, that was lame. And then I sit down for dinner as if all had been restored to normalcy. And this is a problem for both of us, really, because Abby doesn't feel as though I actually understand or care about or empathize with the way that she's been hurt. And eventually, I will likely struggle with a sense of lingering guilt or unsettlement because I haven't confronted what's actually taken place in a thoughtful way. Now, imagine a different scenario, one in which, having wronged Abby in some egregious way, I weep in the grief of my mistake. I express a profound awareness of my mistake, both with my words and with my body, and I allow myself to actually comprehend with empathy and with remorse what my mistake has done and how it has affected her. And again, it isn't that Abby won't forgive me in scenario number one, but Abby is, like God, relational. God doesn't need you to wallow around in guilt just to be forgiven. He doesn't want you to wallow around in guilt at all, but he is in a relationship with you and you with him. So we are to treat him as such. Scott McKnight wrote about this passage in Leviticus saying this, the Israelites were told to make their life uncomfortable for an entire day in order to bring their entire person into harmony with the gravity of sin and the need to turn from sin toward God. At the very core of fasting is empathy with the divine or participation in God's perception of a sacred moment. When someone dies, God is grieved. When someone sins, particularly egregiously, God is grieved. When a nation is threatened, God is grieved. We could provide more examples. The point is this, fasting empowers us to empathize with God. So fasting is a way to put your body through the grief of the Spirit, so to speak, in lamenting your sin or someone else's sin. When you allow the weight of that sin to settle over you for a brief period, you can then experience the full relief of having Jesus lift that weight off of you and having dealt with it on the cross once and for all. So fasting can be a prayer of repentance. Secondly, fasting can be a prayer of grief. Again, this from Scott McKnight. My, uh, why fast when someone dies? Because our respect for the person who has died is so immense and our grief so great that indulgence in any kind of pleasure desacralizes that respect and pain. 
Body grief is perhaps one of the purest examples of what fasting is all about. A human being, overwhelmed by the sacredness of a moment, chooses not to eat in order to sanctify his or her communion with God and participate fully in one of life's grievous moments. Now, when Scott McKnight says the sacredness of a moment, he's talking about those heavy, noteworthy, or trying occasions in our lives and around the world. And this is evident in the Bible as well. Look at this following the death of King Saul in 1 Samuel. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and went to Jabesh where they burned them, which is an ancient burial custom. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Or this from Nehemiah. One of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." If you've experienced tragedy in your own life, then chances are you've also experienced the pressure that our culture tends to apply um, for us to leave grief behind as quickly as possible, to to silence it or dispense with it right away. Uh, And that pressure can be overt or it can be very subtle. Uh, When my dad died a few years ago, when Abby's dad died a few months ago, there were, of course, presumably well-meaning people whose encouragement was essentially, hey, feel happy again. You know, don't grieve, sing worship songs, read encouraging Bible verses, you know, romanticize the the eventual resurrection of the dead. And sure, there is a place for all of that. Don't get me wrong. Those are all good things. But it can muscle healthy grief right out of the room. And recently I was talking to a pastor, friend of mine in Portland, who has a a daughter uh, who's autistic. And he described her as having absolutely no shelf for pretense or platitudes of any kind. And so a friend of theirs died really suddenly and tragically, and, and this pastor's daughter was justifiably hysterical with grief. And um, he, he told me he was so upset for her and in her grief that his reflex was to tell her, hey, listen, it's going to be okay. To which she responded in outrage and yelled in his face, John is dead. And he was taken aback for a moment, by like, oh my gosh. And then, and then he said, Man, you know what? You're right. John is dead. That's not okay. It's probably not going to be okay anytime soon. So fasting becomes a subversive way that we reject our culture's desire to escape the healthy pain of grief and processing and to instead embrace that pain for a season with God. We might do this as a response to personal tragedy or to things going on on a massive scale all around the world, a mass shooting, a war, a natural disaster that claims lives, you know, a wildfire that burns up a huge huge section of geography. These things grieve God in a way that we can scarcely imagine. So fasting enables us to enter into God's grief in a unique way because fasting is one way that we express our grief with our hearts, with our minds and our emotions and with our bodies. The third genre of fasting as prayer is to cry out to God in a crisis. Look at this from 2 Chronicles 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already here, that is, there. 
Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And the story goes on. Jehoshaphat fasts and he prays in the temple to God, and his prayer ends with this famous striking line, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There are times, uh, moments in our lives, in the lives of our families and communities and our churches or even our world in which we experience a, a terrible crossroads or a catastrophe and racked with uncertainty or despair, we cry out to God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And fasting is a way to join the body in the cry of the heart and say, our eyes are on you. Next, Fasting is one way that we pray for God to change his mind. Now, I realize such a statement seems striking to some, but the idea of God changing his mind as a response to prayers and actions of his people is something regularly depicted in the Bible. Look at this from the book of Jonah that includes fasting in particular. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, and here's the message from God. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now listen, the phrase in that passage uh, about Nineveh turning from their evil ways is actually a single word in Hebrew. It's Naham. And this is actually the same word that describes what God does in response. He relented. Naham can also be translated as repent. God repented. Or God changed his mind. God Nahamed. He relented. God repented. God changed his mind. And terrified of those words, what great lengths some have gone to in order to make them say something else. You know, God didn't actually change his mind, they say. And then you just have to ask the question, so is the author lying? Was God lying? Because they both seem to understand that God is relationally dynamic. He actually responds to the prayers and actions of human beings. He, in some cases, even relents or repents or changes his mind. And scripture is filled with stories just like this one. God hears prayers. And he responds, often even reversing his own decrees, changing his mind, changing reality itself at the request of or in response to his people and their prayers. And even if you don't agree with that idea theologically, the language itself is taken right out of the Bible. It shows up again and again. Look at Joel chapter 2. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. There's that phrase again. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart, not your garments, return, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. You know, so often uh, I'll hear folks pray and they very sincerely use that famous um, phrase from the prayer of Jesus himself, not my will, but your will be done, which is great, it's beautiful. But in story after story from the scriptures, God is also quite interested in what you want and what you do. And think about this, even Jesus himself, when he famously prayed, not my will, but your will be done, what did he pray first? 
for God to change his mind. Would Jesus pray this if he truly believed that this was something that God would never in a million years do, that it was, pointless, that it was a pointless and precluded exercise? I would argue that Jesus knew that, whether it was Abraham pleading for Israel or Ahab or Hezekiah or Nineveh pleading for themselves, in the Bible, God will sometimes say something is going to happen and his people say, no, please change your mind. And God says, okay. And in the scriptures, this idea of people who naham and then God who nahams in response is often accompanied by the act of fasting. Arthur Wallace explains it like this. Because man repents in respect to sin, God repents in respect to judgment. Man's change of heart makes it morally possible for God to behave differently towards him, yet acting consistently with his holy character and principles. Fasting is a way we plead for God not only in the arena of our hearts and minds for God to change his mind, but with our entire person, our bodies as well. Next, fasting is a way to discern what God thinks about a situation or a decision that we have to make. Think back to that earlier passage that we read in Acts 13 that said, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This was an important decision to make and it came by way of fasting. And really, for hundreds of years, disciples have associated the art of fasting with the pursuit of a sharpened focus on God's voice and hearing God clearly. I actually learned this week uh, that there is scientific evidence to support this, and I had to read this whole boring medical journal to get there. If you like it, here's some of it. Uh, I read this, the behavioral responses to fasting are associated with increased synaptic plasticity and increased production of new neurons from neural stem cells. It also increases levels of brain hormone called uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or B I should have just said BDNF, that was a lot easier, and they did the work for me, a deficiency of which, BDNF, has been impl implicated in, the depre in depression and various other brain problems. All that to say, for this reason, that there actually is a mind benefit for the ancient art of fasting, fasting has actually been engaged outside of Christian traditions for centuries for the actual purpose of sharpening the mind uh, in decision-making seasons of life. You know, Confucius in China fasted, the yogis in India, Zoroaster in Persia, the, philo the philosophers in Greece, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, they all wrote about and practiced the art of fasting in order to sharpen the mind. For us, as disciples of Jesus, fasting can act as a way to focus the heart and the mind on the voice of God with increased clarity. Now. Those are, in brief, five genres of fasting as prayer. There's repentance, grief, response to a crisis, to change God's mind, and to know God's mind. All of these can and have been done in scheduled rhythms. Um, chances are, you know, the early church practiced uh, twice a week uh, in keeping with Orthodox Jews and the Pharisees who did the same thing. And chances are, there's always going to be something in life to draw from one of those genres to do twice a week or more or less, whatever. Uh, so it can be done in scheduled rhythms or as a spontaneous response to what life throws at you. So this week in our communities, the idea is that we are going to learn to fast as an act of prayer. When you gather as a community, you'll head to practicingtheway.org fasting to walk through a guided approach to this practice. If you're not yet in a community or you're listening to this online, feel free to recruit a few friends and give it a shot. Not unlike uh, last week, you'll set aside a day to fast and to pray. Um, traditionally, in, uh, a fast is a 12-hour period, so you essentially skip 
two meals. Uh, ideally, you'll do that together as a community, but whatever works best for you and your group is fine. Before you do that, just sort of start thinking about the five genres of prayer and fasting that we've unpacked this evening and think of how you might personally best utilize one of those for your time of fasting and prayer. You'll come together as a community, talk about it, and then you'll give it a shot. Now, before we worship again tonight, let me just offer a brief word of encouragement and friendly advice to those of you giving this practice a shot or considering giving this practice a shot. First, really, that's all we ask is to give it a shot. I use that language all the time because I think it's not a ton to ask <laughs> to just give it a shot. You don't need expertise before you begin. You don't need to be a spiritual superhero, have it all together. You don't need to be great at all the other spiritual disciplines before you try this one. You don't even need to love the idea of fasting. <laughs> We're just asking that you, if you're willing to and ready, give it a shot. Practice. When you do, be gentle with one another. You know, remember that this isn't a command. We're not saying you have to do this to be part of Van City. This is an invitation to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So protect one another from, you know, rule enforcement and guilt trips and legalism, but do invite one another to very sincerely give it a real go. And I, I want you to think back to our previous thought experiment about the young jazz student at Juilliard, the student... That student will not practice their instrument for the sake of practicing. Practice is a means to an end, and the end is mastery of a particular art. You know, when we take on fasting, or really any spiritual discipline, it is a means to an end, and that end is God, God himself. We want to grow and mature as disciples of Jesus. And finally... I want us to remember something I continue to insist, which is this idea that fasting is not a way to manipulate God into answering your prayers or to get what you want. In fact, we often fast more so as a response, not for a response. So not unlike other genres of prayer and listening, we often experience breakthrough and growth in fasting, and it's incredible. And there are times when you will not. Just as the student of music often matures in their craft during practice sessions, sometimes in one particular session, unlocking new abilities and techniques all happens over the course of a few hours in an instrument, while there are also times that that doesn't happen at all. And yet, we go on practicing. Because the disciplines are not a checklist, you know, they are, they are a way of life. I, I talk to my wife at dinner every night, and I go out with her on Friday night and talk to her about my life and her life and ask her questions, and she asks me questions, and we watch old sitcoms together before bed, not because checking each, each thing off the list uh, sustains our status as a couple, but because these kinds of things make up the whole of our life together over time. These things grow and mature us as a couple, and they bring us closer together. They are a means to an end, and the end is our life together as a married couple. I, I don't want us to go into fasting ready to buy in if we're impressed and ready to bow out if we are not. Like, oh, I didn't like this particular, it didn't do much for me. I want us to understand fasting, and all the disciplines really, as a way of life, a means to an end, and that end is knowing God practicing the way of Jesus together. So with that in mind, let me pray over this week's practice and our time together as we worship.